Hello, gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch. I am Michael Lilienthal, your host, and this is Ethan Bartlett, my guest. I'm his guest, Ethan Bartlett, and I'm matching his energy. Ooh, energy. Because it's the fourth episode uh, of this set of four, or more, we'll see, I don't know. Um, And... It's the energy that is being given to me by the Creek Isle Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, aged 12 years in American oak. I just want to say, I don't think that was a real explanation. (laughs) You were like, this energy is because it's the fourth episode, but like, that's not a reason. (laughs) Just saying. But it could be. I mean, anything could be. Yeah. Good. That's, um, that's all so, I got on we, that, yeah. While we, while we pour this scotch, get your wife in here to read the rules. Hey, wife, can you come and read the rules, please? Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule 3. Ethan must never say the phrase, first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule 4. Michael must never say the words, vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5. If anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6. The wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7. If four scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses. And what happens if someone breaks the rules? If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly. Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener. Thanks. I've brought, now see, I've brought my own weird energy. Yep. I have no idea what it was, what it is, or what it shall be, but here we are. But it's it's there. Weird energy. It's gotta gotta happen. So um Lachayim. Schlunk. I gotta offer quick. Yeah you do. Okay, I have uh, triumphed over that obstacle course, and I'm back. Yeah, that was uh, it was like watching American Ninja Warrior here. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm sure it was uh, riveting audio as well. <laughs> um, yeah, how much of it stays in will be will be a question. Uh, that's yeah, very good. Uh, let's it'll not talk depend, about that anymore. It'll depend on how vindictive I'm feeling at both of us. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, there, there's a certain amount of uh, of self punishment involved. Really, in this um, show? In yeah, yeah. I don't know where that came from, though. Anyway, we are uh, discussing this same book. Uh, feels like we've been reading it for an entire year. Uh, War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Years. Right, right. Um, yeah. Whew, this this book is. I mean, like, there's so much. There's a lot. Like, so much. There, yeah. Like, yeah, at a certain point, it does feel... Honestly, uh, when we were scheduling this record, um, I had forgotten... Be- because of who I am as a person, I had forgotten, like, where we were in the rotation, who was supposed to host these episodes. And I thought I was <laughs> supposed to host them and i when i thought that it was just with a great sense of despair because it's like (laughs) there's so much to talk about that it like feels paralyzing to try to choose anything or Mm -hmm. or narrow down anything um i don't know i i had thought about if our last episode hadn't essentially been this i had thought about saying we should just and maybe i mean we can still do this if we want because there's more plenty more but like talk just saying like we should just pick out some of our favorite passages and just just sort of talk about them because i i think we somewhat did that last episode um yeah i mean there's certainly some of that kind of rotating around a central theme but um right you know you could just pick out i think any given passage chapter uh sequence Uh of chapters uh storyline um you know, and again, as we as we always say, For but sure. it's especially true about this book, like, have four episodes just about that. Honestly, um, it, it could it could turn into something like that. I could do four episodes um, per chapter on this whole book. I I don't know that I would yeah, want I, to or that anyone would want me to, but I think I could. Just do an annual podcast on War and Peace and just, like, go through the entire book every year. I mean... In a, in a podcast don't threaten me with a good time all right i mean it could it could it could be a real thing um but there there was something that i did specifically want to ask you about before we got too far and and couldn't sure. um and i i don't know if you've exhausted it already because you've you've kind of touched on it throughout the previous three episodes um but i wanted to ask you why Natasha is so significant to you. Um, I mean, I, I like I that that maybe sounded a little more combative than I, I no, meant it to be, but <laughs> that's that's fine either way, honestly. But I, I I mean the the uh um uh first answer that that pours forth to my lips is because I love her. Um, <laughs> and by that I do mean like I am in love with her like I'm not gonna <laughs> I'm sorry to my wife who has already appeared on this podcast and like everything but like um, I mean it's it's I mean it's partly that I mean, like but she does she does seem like the sort of person that wives understand if their husbands are in love with her right and and to be fair my, my wife is pretty forgiving about me 
being in love with or even attracted to fictional characters usually like she doesn't mm. seem threatened by that in the way that i would expect her to if if the person were like say a real person walking around in the world mm. um mm-hmm. so you know there there is that i suppose but like um i mean i guess one thing if i'm trying to like sort of push beyond just that that instinctive uh uh response i was i was okay so i'm gonna do this aside and i'm gonna make it as quick as possible there's a yes. an anthology <laughs> there's an anthology that's called thackeray t lamb's heads um so it's it's something about eccentric and and discredited diseases and it's basically a bunch of like science fiction and fantasy authors writing in sort of the style of like a 19th century encyclopedia writing like entries about these diseases that don't exist <laughs> and i want to say it was neil gaiman whose contribution was this like disease where it was like this particular person you know in a in a brazil or or something like that who was just like the most beautiful woman ever and it's like to even behold her or know about her is to literally fall in love with her and and the in this disease is very contagious and like halfway through it's like you know it it has this turn where from this very clinical you know <laughs> terminology it's suddenly just like um and no one is no one has proven worthy of her because i am worthy of her i will i will win her um like that's kind of how i feel about natasha but i think that like part i mean even part of the reason that she strikes me this way like um might even have to do with the fact that like she is such a real female character in a way that you don't often get in 19th century novels especially ones written by men um mm. like she has the reality of one of jane austen's characters but with like the vividness of a dickens character that i think um the, the vividness of a character that i think can only be uh uh you know flesh out fully in a novel like of this length or of this 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 mm -hmm. depth like um austin's characters are wonderful they're they're very real they're very rich but uh you know because of the type of novel she's writing like like they're not vivid in the same manner that i think any of tolstoy's characters are but especially natasha um mm -hmm. and but at the same and and at the same time as she you know and there there is an element here that like um we could get into of the fact that she kind of is like the catalyst for both Pierre and Andre's spiritual revelations in a way that like borders on or could border on objectification that's like probably one of the aspects mm. of the novel that I'm like the least thrilled about um mm. i think it does that in far less of an objectionable way than even like a lot of novels written by men in the 20th and 21st centuries like i i don't want to lay too much sure. like hashtag me too stuff at tolstoy's feet but like there's there's a little bit of that that's 
you know, mm. in there. Um, and you know, I try to, I try to avoid it in my own, my own, uh, uh, I can't think of a different phrase than my own relationship with Natasha. And I know exactly how that sounds. Don't make fun of me, but, um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. That said, no like, well, yeah, I mean, I know. Um, the fact that she is such a vivid and well-rounded character, like, it's also that she has a lot of flaws. Like, in the hands of a lesser author and an author, like, less interested in the reality of all of his characters, um, and again, just from the examples we have from history and reality, like, especially male authors fall into this trap, like, a character like that often doesn't have any flaws. And Natasha, um, hmm. I don't know if she or Tolstoy would be the first to admit, but they would be the first and second to admit that she has very deep and very real flaws. But it's like yeah. something even about like the flaws that she has just endear her to me like even more um, in some ways. And, you know, part of this is just going to be a very probably visceral, emotional reaction that I can't really explicate. Um, That's uh, fine. But part of it is just like, I don't know, there's there's like a, a vulnerability and like a like a rawness to the way Natasha engages with the world um, that's mm. really striking. I think that... Um, I think, like, I was trying to remember, um, I said last time that, that the, the, um, ending of Prince Andre's life was the only scene that made me cry both in the, in the, uh, Mm. both of my reads of this novel. I think that, um, the scene where Natasha... It's after uh, Natasha, like, like, is gonna elope with, um, uh, this, uh, I can't remember his name, the, 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 um, sort of playboy Yeah, guy. the scoundrel. Yeah. Yep. Um, and she's, like, sort of in her funk hole and Pierre comes to try to talk to her and, and she has a line where she basically is like, don't be kind to me, I don't deserve it, or something, something to that effect. Mm. Um, and I think that in this read of the book, and when I watched the the Soviet film, that scene made me cry because there's something about mm. um, I don't know, Natasha's just like, and you know, I don't, I think that it's maybe as much of a flaw as a as a um, I think I think it's 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 a flaw rather than like a like a heroic characteristic or something but like just her wholehearted willingness to just like throw herself away feels very um like identifiable to me especially i think Mm. when i was more sort of her age like that that teenage you know um access of feeling and emotion that you maybe and maybe for good reason usually grow out of and usually can't access in the same like <laughs> to the same intensity when you're when you're older um uh so like i th- i think that there's there's something there that like i 
both like identify with and like want to protect others from in including <laughs> you know my my love natasha um <laughs> and i don't know i mean some of the other more personal things even are just like i think she reminds me of the type of like young woman i had crushes on when i was like roughly like the ages natasha is in the novel like if i were her age mm-hmm. you know um so there's there's that probably but but uh oh there was one other thing i was going to say uh about that i don't know like oh and i guess that like even in the the epilogue um where she and pierre are sort of like you know this this more or less like stable happily married couple with with kids and they've kind Mm -hmm. of like both grown out of their own um uh youthful insanities um uh, if that's not too too mm-hmm. broad of a broad of a word to use but um i don't know even in, in 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 sort of that passage i get like a similar sense to a similar sense of like contentedness um to people i've known you know from from that age or, or very close to that age from when we were all much younger who you know i i helped or tried to help through things who have like you know sort of gotten gotten older and gotten more stable like there's a contentedness to like okay thank god i don't have to worry about this person and like i Mm -hmm. I feel a very similar uh uh (laughs) relief um as as i get to page you know 1450 or whatever of of war and peace um Mm -hmm. and so i think that's all of like the spaghetti that I can throw at the wall <laughs> on that matter. And I think that once again, as I think we talked about last time in somewhat different contexts, like it is just a testament to Tolstoy's ability to create like characters that really feel like they're, they're living and, and breathing. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Harold Bloom in talking about Shakespeare's characters has a couple passages where he has these kind of, kind of cheeky intentionally provocative you know asides where he sort of is snide about people who go out of their way to say that Shakespeare's characters are fictional and you know Bloom says that like he sometimes feels like Shakespeare's characters are more real and alive and Mm. authentically human than a lot of the people he's known um yeah and much as I do love Shakespeare as as you know any at all previous listeners of this podcast will absolutely know. Um, I almost feel like Tolstoy's characters in war and peace are the ones I would say that about more than Shakespeare's yeah. characters potentially. I, I I heard someone, or maybe I read it um, recently. It's kind of funny actually that I don't know for sure uh, <laughs> because the anecdote was that they were, talking to someone and um, said something about, oh, I just heard someone say this. And then after they said it, they realized, oh, no, I didn't hear anybody say that. That was Pierre talking <laughs> in War and Peace. Um, <laughs> but it was, like, so real to them. Yeah. Um, that 
uh, like Pierre's Pierre's a friend yeah. that they've got, and, you know. Um, yeah, and I I think that there that's really interesting actually that you say that. Um, one thing it reminds me of is uh, Milan Kundera, um, mm. who I feel like I've been relatively light on the 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 Ethan unbearably so. Thank you. Um, <laughs> on the Ethan bingo card for this show, uh, the last three episodes or so, and now I've mentioned Shakespeare mm. and Milan Kundera in like the same three minutes. Um, <laughs> but Kundera, of course, in was either in the curtain or his other or the art of the novel, um, has this great passage where he talks about how reassuring or like comforting it is to him that. So many novelists have taken inspiration from uh, uh, their forebears in translation, as in novelists reading in mm. their own native language someone from a language that they didn't speak in translation, but that inspired mm-hmm. other great works. And it's, you know, and I don't remember any of the examples he gave, but, you know, think about like someone reading rabelais but in english and then reading say mm-hmm. shakespeare but in in spanish and reading don quixote but in russian that kind of thing um right and uh uh like i not only from reading this book but again from from watching the soviet films you know i watched them in russian with subtitles but in my memory quite often it feels like the people in them are speaking english like oh um, sure and and you know i mean the people in the translations that i've read are also speaking english but it's like there is an 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 aural a-u-r-a-l quality to um tolstoy even in translation i found that i can like it seems mm. very natural in the English, like I can hear it in it in in my head instead of just mm-hmm. processing it like words on a page. I don't know if that means anything yeah. at all, but um, well, it just it's a testament to his craft. I think that we really that itself, just talking about Tolstoy's craft, could be four episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, that his his mastery with with the writing, um, technical aspect of the writing mm-hmm. um is just it, it's astounding and um i haven't read uh anna karenina mm-hmm. um my wife has uh it's on my bookshelf i'd like to read it so um i i'm curious to see how his writing i know that's not the only other thing he's read but that's like his most famous right. other book um, i read it several years ago um i'd say nine or ten years ago and I'm sometimes tempted to go back and reread it, but mm. my own recollection, or based on my own recollection, I think War and Peace is vastly superior. Like, sure, I'm almost glad I read them in the order that I did because I think that, uh, mm. you know, if I if I'd read Anna Karenina after War and Peace, I think it would just be a letdown. Um, sure. And I'm sorry to to report that to you, uh, given eh. what you just said. But, you know, I think Anna Karenina is certainly worth re. I mean, it's obviously like a classic of literature, so whatever. But, like, I think it's worth reading. I just, I think in every possible way, except maybe the opening, as I mentioned. Um, yeah. I guess last episode, but uh, 
you know, I think War and Peace just... It's not even that it's a better book, it's just that it's a more fulfilling book. If that makes sense. Yeah. Sure, sure. I, I can I can understand that. Um, as I understand it, though, too, uh, some of Tolstoy's ideologies, especially some of his later ones, were present in a um, s- sort of proto-form in Anna Karenina, as well as War and Peace. Um, like, he, he uh, especially later in life, did not... Uh, value the institution of marriage and thought it was um, unnecessary. <laughs> really? I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, th- I mean, this is, I, I'm not an expert in Tolstoy, so if anybody wants to correct me on that, I, I will accept that graciously. But that's what I, I read. Um, and that's that's really fascinating to me, not only in Anna Karenina, but also in War and Peace. And I don't know how fully developed that sort of idea was for him at the time that he wrote this book. But thinking of Pierre, for instance, in his um, arc, you know, where he, he marries more or less for society reasons. Right. Um, but somehow has like, it's like his match is just astounding to him. He's, he's given everything, right? He inherits this massive, massive fortune and then marries the woman that everybody wants to be married to. Like It's like she's the, the quintessential uh, all the men want to be with her and all the women want to be her right. uh, sort of character. But then like as it goes on, his uh, marriage is he he's disappointed in it and he doesn't he doesn't enjoy that marriage. Um, and I don't know if it's entirely clear why he doesn't like it. There's the I mean, there's a lot of like interpersonal stuff with him and his wife but like it's it's the the lack of clarity i think on why it's such a negative thing for him is part of what makes it so real too yeah (laughs) yeah i mean i think that in in some ways it seems like sort of a quintessential um hasty youthful unwise marriage Um, like, I, I think if I'm just sort of basing, you know, my, my perceptions just on my reading of the text, sort of exclusive of, uh, uh, you know, extra textual knowledge, what I get from both the portrayal of marriage and in, even in, and engagement and, and such things generally and, and Pierre and, and Helene's relationship specifically um is this idea it's sort of a sort of a quintessential like pierre and helene are rushed into a thing not for their own like Mm. not from their own knowledge of themselves and of each other but right as you said for for society purposes that this is like it actually parallels in my mind um this idea that, I, and it's a passage I've been meaning to bring up, even though I can't remember where it is, much less like some of the details. But there's like a passage at some point where, maybe it's when Napoleon's issuing the retreat from Russia, but it was like this reversal of the great man theory of history, where it's like, oh, like, 
the idea that, uh, you know, Napoleon wasn't a genius for issuing this order and he wasn't even acting under his own whim. It was all of the forces of history were such that this order had to be issued and Napoleon was just mm-hmm. the person standing in the place to issue it. And that yep. there's, there's almost a... Maybe maybe I'm stretching too much to make this a parallel, but it's like almost a parallel where uh, uh, Pierre and Helene aren't acting of their own like volition to get married. It's basically that society; these are the two people that society needs to get to be married, and they, if there's any like sin or flaw or whatever you want to call it in they're getting married it's that they just bow to the whims of society rather than like knowing Mm -hmm. themselves and knowing what they want and as far as marriage in general like i think the idea that i picked up was sort of that like it, it to me it pushed against this very rigid social christianity that i think was probably prevalent in russia as it was in much of Europe at the time and and in variations in in parts of parts of um the US and and so forth but this idea of like um there being absolutely no forgiveness for divorce and no like space mm. for it even though at the same time you know so many people were forced into marriages for political reasons or social reasons or cultural reasons or other reasons that just like were absolutely not suitable for Mm -hmm. them personally. They were just suitable for the world around them. And Mm -hmm. what I perceived again, just, just based on the text was Tolstoy pushing against some of those very, what some people might call sort of bourgeois, um, uh, assumptions and and you know maybe even even bigotries um and you know of course i'm i'm like playing with a lot of very provocative topics here that might require a lot of nuance to to fully discuss uh uh <laughs> worthily but um i certainly think that like f- just from the text of this book you can very much get a tolstoy pushing against conventional wisdom about marriage one way or the other. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It, well, it's interesting to me too, that, I mean, there, there are some of these uh, marriages that have the interpersonal conflict of husband and wife that is just very real. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like some of that is, is pushed to an an extreme like with Pierre and Helene, but also uh, the other one is um, Andre and his, his wife at the beginning of the book, the little princess um, who again, like Helene is just beloved of everyone. Um, But then when you see Andre interact with her, he's dismissive of her and belittles her and all that, which like immediately turns the reader against Andre Mm -hmm. because like, how can you hate this angel? Right. (laughs) How can you treat this perfect being this way? Um, which is, is part of the purpose, but, um, it's, it's interesting that both of those marriages, uh, are a starting place 
And then there's a transcendence that comes out of there and further marriages that are pursued. Really, Andre and Pierre are both pursuing Natasha, mm -hmm. ultimately, um, which is interesting. Andre, um, you know, we talked about that earlier, the the um, engagement and then how it's broken off by, by Natasha and this is part of her whole tragic thing. Um, and then Pierre just kind of being her friend the whole time until he finally does marry her in the end. Right. Um, which is, uh, you know, in, in, in the context of Tolstoy kind of pushing back against the conventions of marriage in his day, like this is a marriage that starts off as friends, mm -hmm. which is a much more like 21st century idea um, than, than it is a 19th century idea and, right. but like the fact that it ends there and like that's the conclusion that's where the purpose leads is this marriage that comes out of friendship i think speaks volumes about tolstoy's views on marriage sure um i don't know yeah no i i mean i think that like it's interesting because you're you're absolutely not wrong that it's it's a much more 21st century view of marriage i think a lot of like people who have studied the topic in in various disciplines would say it's a much more psychologically healthy um mm. vision or version of marriage yeah um i but you know the other like strongest within the realms of fiction the other strongest uh example that comes to mind maybe just because of of sort of where we are era wise um is jane austen um mm. you know a, a, all of the happiest marriages in austen uh sort of whether accidentally or th or through machinations or whatever like tend to evolve from a a a sort of basis of friendship um mm -hmm. even like like if, if you look at like pride and prejudice like elizabeth and darcy's ultimate happiness like like you you could view i think their entire arc as like this the sort of like friends who don't realize that they should be friends for a while kind of mm -hmm. kind of relationship and like one of my favorite passages is actually very it's like very late in Pride and Prejudice um and it's just when like I think I think Elizabeth and Darcy are engaged or they're certainly like there's no questions anymore and there's this kind of mm. long passage for like a denouement section um that's just them reviewing sort of things that happened earlier in the novel and them having this whole discussion of like, well, okay, but why did you do blah, blah, blah? And like, why did you do blah, blah, blah? Mm -hmm. um, and it's this very, like, it's a sort of discussion, like, and maybe some of it's just in tone and so forth, but it's like this, this discussion that like friends would have um, mm -hmm. much more than like, you know, people who viewed their marriage as like a social partnership or a, or a monetary arrangement or, or, you know, whatever, um, other, other view there is. Um, 
So I don't know if, if, you know, you could argue that this is like sort of a universal view that like fiction writers, great fiction writers have understood long before it became mainstream, or if you could view it as like maybe something that was developing in the consciousness of the 19th century. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, both of those are probably inadequate uh, ideas, but you're right. But yeah, but it's definitely, um, yeah, definitely very interesting. For sure. I I wonder, you know, with the Jane Austen connection, how much of that is tied to romanticism and then how much of romanticism influences war and peace if indeed that is tied to it that might be just a bigger discussion than than is relevant for our purposes i mean today but i think it would be certainly a very fruitful discussion and i think that all of those things are tied together um Mm. is a statement i'm confident making i don't have a parallel like one sentence statement that would describe how those things are tied together. I think we would have to have a, a long and in-depth and to you and me and possibly no one else, very interesting discussion to like tease out what the connections are and, and, and where they lie. Um, right. It we'll, we'll, we'll just assign that as another master's thesis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It'd be a great master's thesis or term paper or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Perfect. Um, I, I do. I am intrigued at this point also to uh, just like take stabs at some of our favorite passages in the book um, sure. and like see where the discussion takes us. Uh, if if that's something you're, you're still willing and interested in doing. Um, yeah, of course. I, I have one that uh, that I've pulled up here that it was one that made me laugh out loud. Um but I think it does tie in with some of the discussion we had, especially in the previous episode, in, in episode three uh, on War and Peace. Mm. Um, and that is in volume four, part four, the end of chapter 11. Volume four, part four, the end of chapter 11. So this is getting into denouement territory. Um, and, it, okay, I'm just going to read. It's the last paragraph of... Volume 4, Part 4, Chapter 11. Kutuzov did not understand the significance of Europe, balance, Napoleon. He could not understand it. Once the foe was annihilated, once Russia was delivered and placed at the highest degree of her glory, for this Russian man, as a Russian, there was nothing more to do. For the representative of the national war, there was nothing left but death. And so he died. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, obviously Kutuzov is a, is a historical character. He's the general that like went head to head against Napoleon, so to speak. Um, but the way Tolstoy just wraps up his story here, and he's been somewhat of a buffoon the whole time in this novel. Um, not without nobility. I think Tolstoy gives him what he thinks is his due. Um, what Tolstoy thinks is is Kutuzov's due, but um, he he he's the one who falls asleep in war meetings and stuff, but also considers himself and is considered by many um, the representative of the national war. Um, you know, so like he's he's that general at the head. But then 
again, getting to the idea of character arcs and, and everything, that the arc isn't done until there's no more arc to be had, mm-hmm. you know, uh, until death happens, you know, whether whether death is there because the purpose is fulfilled or whether the purpose is fulfilled because death happens, you know, one way or the other. Um, but this also being tied in with this lack of understanding and Kutuzov did not understand and he could not understand and that's why he died. Right. <laughs> right. Like, um, he's, he's the sheep, he's the fat sheep that gets taken off to be slaughtered, you know, in, in that whole discussion. But it, again, like I say, this is one that made me laugh out loud, especially just the last four word sentence, uh, in the Pavir Velikonsky translation that, and so he died. Yeah. Um, the other sentences are, the meaning is there, the, the, um, the phrasing is different in mine, but like. I think that last sentence is the exact same. And so he mm-hmm. died. It's so good. And so he died. Um, Just... Yeah. It was perfect punctuation. Yeah. There. Absolutely. Um, I will say, like, I think there are a surprising number of passages in this book where if you're paying attention, there is humor. Like... Um, uh-huh. you know, everyone assumes when you're reading a Russian novel, it's just dour all the time and, and <laughs> tragic and, and, you know, um, I've had people who obviously everyone, like almost everyone knows War and Peace, uh, as a title, but I've had people just be like, just assume that it's, it's tragic in its entire contents, right? That like, no one ends up well, um, so people who talk to me about it and then I tell them that uh, uh, my two favorite characters like get their happy ending sometimes are shocked. Um, oh, sure. But and I'm, I'm not saying this to introduce any other particular passage, but just to say that I think there are a fair number of of passages, sometimes even as you just quoted, like like even. uh, uh you know just just fairly short self-contained like little paragraphs or whatever that like are funny Mm -hmm. um right sometimes with a somewhat dark humor uh sometimes not i don't like there's but yeah that uh if if you go into it expecting like your stereotype of like a russian um a russian novel or russian fiction like Mm -hmm. there's uh you will be somewhat surprised at how yes. funny Tolstoy can be. Yes. The the stereotypes like the, there's a meme that like communicates the stereotype I think pretty well that like it so English literature I will die for honor, French literature I will die for love, American literature I will die for freedom, French or Russian literature I will die. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which again is like not untrue but um it's not false. Yeah. No. It but sometimes it'll just, yeah. it'll still surprise you. Yes, exactly. Um, I don't know, like, you know, I know I suggested the idea of of uh, favorite passages, <laughs> but like, I honestly feel like we've been able to hit a lot of mine. Like, um, oh sure, Natasha. So Pierre extending grace to Natasha. I mentioned, I think maybe even this episode, if not or last episode. Okay, so here's actually one that I dog-eared in what I described earlier as the most skippable portion of the book, um, uh, which is 
part the epilogue part two this is at the end of chapter eight um and i do enjoy pointing out to people that war and peace has a 100 page epilogue with two parts both of which have multiple chapters uh but the passage as it's as it's translated in my copy or in my the the in my translation if men descended from the apes at an unknown period of time that is as comprehensible as that they were made from a handful of earth at a certain period of time in the first mm. case the unknown quantity is the time in the second case it is the origin and the question of how man's consciousness of freedom is to be reconciled with the law of necessity to which he is subject cannot be solved by comparative physiology and zoology, for in a frog, a rabbit, and an ape, we can observe only the muscular nervous activity, but in man we observe consciousness as well as the muscular nervous mm. activity. The naturalists and their followers, thinking they can solve the question, are like plasterers set to plaster one side of the walls of a church, who, availing themselves of the absence of the chief superintendent of superintendent of the work should in an access of zeal plaster over the windows icons woodwork and still unbuttressed walls and should be delighted that from their point of view as plasterers everything is now so smooth and regular um <laughs> and i think i dog-eared this passage partly because um uh it was it it, it again you know we just talked about Tolstoy, like, sort of having this very 20 se 21st century view of, of marriage as sort of coming out of friendship. Um, this is essentially uh, Lost in the Cosmos in a nutshell, uh, a work that yeah, yeah. Walker Percy would write in the latter half of the 20th century based on, or at least partly based on semiotics, a, a discipline which only grew up in that part of the century. So once again... Um, mm -hmm. Tolstoy is like at least a hundred years ahead of his time. Yes. Uh, uh, the, and, and to be clear, what I'm talking about is sort of the idea that um, evolutionary theory, as far as it goes, hasn't been adequate to explain the phenomenon of consciousness as we have so far observed it in humans and in no other creatures. Um. Mm hmm. So yeah, there's that. Do you have any other any other passages that were like jumping out at you to share, Michael? I, I well, I, I I don't have a lot of really significant ones that are jumping out at me at this point. Um, but there there was one that um, I, I just have to share a little bit because we touched on um this scoundrel person that uh, Natasha was uh with for a little while. Yeah. Um, and that's Anatoly, Anatoly yeah. Kurigin. Thank you. Kurgan, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but in volume two, part five, chapter eleven. Volume two, part five, chapter eleven. Uh, I subtitled that chapter or how much Anatoly sucks. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it goes into detail about how much of a prodigal he is, wasting his money, going into debt, uh, his womanizing, how he had gotten married and abandoned his wife, um, and 
Then uh, it says, Anatoly was always content with his position with himself and with others. He was instinctively convinced with his whole being that it was impossible for him to live otherwise than the way he lived, and that he had never in his life done anything bad. He was not capable of reflecting either on how his actions might affect others or on what might com come of one or another of his actions. We, uh, and like it goes on uh, in a similar vein. And so Anatoly becomes a clown here for Tolstoy. I, and I don't mean to to um, uh, reduce his character to just a, a symbol here either, because he is a full character. He is a real character, just like all of Tolstoy's characters are. But in his ideology and in his behavior, he does become a sort of representative of the opposite of Tolstoy's views mm -hmm. on things in in general, the idea of not knowing that Anatoly, because he can't know and doesn't know that he can't know, becomes a buffoon, becomes destructive, mm -hmm. um, self-centered, solipsistic, mm -hmm. and um, uh, problematic in many ways. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. Yeah, that's that's something that's yeah, out a little bit there. It's a it's a great passage. I feel like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, like, Tolstoy, it's also an example, again, of Tolstoy's craft there, that in the way he discusses this character, the way he just very briefly delineates his inner being is so punchy mm -hmm. and so succinct and so telling mm -hmm. <laughs> in a lot of ways. Yeah. I don't know. It's good. It's really good. Yeah, for sure. I have one more um yes that please. I could find and it's uh uh I was a little reluctant to share it for just like the silly reason that we touched on it either this episode or last episode and like sort of discussed through most of the passage but it's uh the mm. very last paragraph of um uh volume 4 book 4 in my translation part 1 um when Prince Andre is dying. Um, mm. and, but it's, it's the very last paragraph. Uh, in my translation, it reads, Natasha and Princess Maria also wept now, but not because of their own personal grief. They wept with a reverent mm. and softening emotion, which had taken possession of their souls at the consciousness of the simple and solemn mystery of death that had been accomplished in their presence. And... Uh. I don't I don't know how it's exactly translated in yours uh Michael but the the phrase the simple and solemn mystery of death um has connotations that I can't believe someone familiar with again orthodoxy with a capital O um orthodox christianity would be unaware of mm. of the idea of like uh uh sacramental theology um mm -hmm. sacraments Especially in slightly more archaic phrasings, often were referred to as mysteries. So, um, mm -hmm. what people often call communion is is sometimes referred to as the mystery of the Eucharist, or the the um, the actually mystery of the Eucharist. I think is the the main phrase I'm trying to think of. Um, yeah, and this idea that like you know, and I don't know, maybe it's Tolstoy trying kind of being radically radical in his in his religiosity and and trying to reduce the idea of a sacrament somehow but like the idea that like the 
the pass just the passing of a human life at its at its most basic um form is somehow like a sacrament and and a mystery um or even without that religious that religious overtone just like the idea of it being a mystery like the there's sort of a resonance where both both things kind of work there um yeah i it's i i don't think the religiosity is excluded from that by any means i think it, it's probably very central and mine mine also says the simple and solemn mystery of death um okay so seems seems like a pretty solid translation if it if it crosses yeah. uh translators there um but i you know he highlight told so he highlights just a few paragraphs previously the fact that i mean he just does it in a couple of words that um andre confessed and took communion so he he got his his last rites there it's 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 very clear i don't know of anybody else who well i maybe maybe his father uh was mentioned no no cuz his father was was anti religious yeah i feel like his father much. didn't but, um so i don't know if anybody else is mentioned as actually receiving last rites in um, the rest of the novel the only other potential example i can think of is pierre's benefactor i think he is like very mm. briefly mentioned but he's like he's not as much of a yeah. character as any of the right. other people that we're talking about here so right right but um so like i mean there, there's there's a reason that that's brought up too that i think is connected with the same idea of this death is sacramental this yeah. this death is I mean, it is that simple, solemn mystery of death, mm-hmm. um, and mystery being like the Greek mysterios, um, related to the Latin. It like in the Vulgate that was translated into Latin as sacramentum. Mm. Um, so like mystery and sacrament are, are intertwined ideas yeah. here, and that's that's part of the um, reason that in even in more archaic uses of of like english theological language um often you Mm -hmm. hear the term mystery used and in um uh interchangeably almost with with sacrament right right yeah um and i think that ties right in with tolstoy's whole philosophy of not knowing Mm -hmm. right that like penetrating into the mysteries is not something that we can do instead we just we stand before it and weep like Maria and Natasha. Yeah, and, and um. a, a mystery is, <laughs> in Tolstoy, a mystery is maybe not something to be solved so much as something to behold in its wholeness as a mystery. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it really just, it's beautiful language, too, and just adds to the heavy emotion of that scene. Yeah. 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 Good. 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 Well, now I'm going to cry again, so thanks, <laughs> Ethan. Um, anything else on War and Peace here? I mean, nothing that's not going to take us another four episodes. Right. So I I'm, I think we got to call it here. We're going to say this is the end of our discussion of War and Peace until next year. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is the institution of uh, the annual Mondo book. It's just the War and Peace forever, forevermore. Forever. Forever and ever, amen. Um, yeah. So now, Ethan, nobody broke any rules. I'm afraid in the last that that's four true. Yes. Um, 
And because of that, we both broke a rule. That is also true. Meaning that we both need to be punished because neither of us broke a rule. Um, so I, I suggest, uh, being the host of these episodes, that we go back to the old uh, standard and uh, take advantage of a, a Shakespeare race. What do you think? Uh, I'm, yeah, that that works for me as well as anything. Okay, um, let me pull up. Do you do you have a particular monologue that you would like to do? No. Or do, would you like? Do me you to? have okay. one? I had one suggestion ah, that is not a Shakespeare suggestion. Oh, okay. I'm I'm intrigued. My suggestion was going to be the opening paragraph of this novel. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Um yes, because it's in French yes. and so it would match. Um oh man. All right, this this is this is good. Um You're I still going to win this but... message. Well, we'll see. Uh it's it's French, so we'll we'll I mean we'll, we'll go through it. I but, mean, you uh, and I have both studied right, French, but but you're still gonna win. That's that's, that's all true. I'll say. <laughs> all right, there I've got there. I mean, there's some English in here too, but we'll just go through the first paragraph. Yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. All let's right. just do it. Like it's it might all be right. messy. It's it's gonna be terrible and awful, and it'll be. Great. I mean, nobody will win um, no matter what. So. No, is this this is not something to win. This is a punishment because we've already lost. Correct. Um, so, all right, I'll count us down: three, two, one, and then we go. Yes. Ready? Yes. All right. Three, two, one. Eh bien, eh bien mon prince Jean et Luc ne sont plus que des apprentis des Non, je vous préviens que si vous ne me dites pas que nous avons la guerre, si vous permettez encore de parler toutes les infamies, toutes les atrocités de cette entreprise, ma parole, je crois, je ne vous connais plus, je vous n'êtes plus mon ami, vous n'êtes plus ma faithful slave comme vous dites. Well, good evening, good evening. Je vois que je vous fais sit down and tell me all about it. Sit down and tell me all the news. <laughs> wow, that was painful <laughs> on so many levels. That... <sighs> I don't know when we decided that like our punishment would also be the listeners' punishments, but here we are. <laughs> it seems fair. It, I mean, you know, it... like they they suffer a lot. <laughs> fair to someone, anyway. Ooh, fair to someone. Yes. All right. Uh, now let's go on to the ratings, yes. Ethan. Um, how would you rate this scotch, the Krieg Isle 12 year single malt scotch on a scale of one to five stars? Um, I am going to rate it a four. Um, I did like it quite a bit. Uh, at no point was I sorry to be drinking it. I could easily see myself buying it again um for my own tastes like it made a lot of promises uh you kind of highlighted in like the first episode <laughs> that like its own description of itself involved the word smoke a lot and it it doesn't not have smoke like i'm not trying to mm. say it it made false promises it just didn't have the smoke of like a Lafroy or a Lagavulin, and like that's always the level of smoke I'm looking for, especially if you promise me smoke. 
That said, mm-hmm. it had a lot of really nice layers. It had, I mean, it did have smoke. There was, there was smoke. The like most forthright, um, uh, you know, set of tastes I was getting off it was like chocolate. It was like a dark chocolate, mm. like on the front of it, um, which I really enjoyed. Like that's that's not a bad thing mm-hmm. at all. Um, there was definitely some like. I think there was a little bit of like like uh salt water like sea sea air sea brine kind of energy to it which is also a very good thing probably my second favorite um mm-hmm. uh uh you know scotch element um after uh smoke um also definitely some uh <sighs> I don't know. I'm trying to think of a, a better word than like prairie elements, like grassy elements. Um, oh, grassy is fine. Yeah. yeah. But like, I don't know, like, yeah, I, I guess some like floral slash grassy um, mm-hmm. notes to it that I also did like. Like, there's definitely a lot going on. There's it's it's very full of um, nuance and context. Um, but yeah, I'd say I'd say mm-hmm. a, a solid you know a a a 2.5 is the threshold of like scotch that i'm not sorry i bought a three is like you know pretty good like might buy again Mm -hmm. a four is like would definitely buy again so like i'm i'm solidly there Mm -hmm. i hate to say it but i agree i'm also giving this a four um for pretty much the same reasons i mean it's got all kinds of layers to it um, they, the, like you say, the smoke isn't overpowering. I don't mind that too much. Um, yeah, I really do like a good smoky peaty scotch. I am a little disappointed that it doesn't totally live up to the hype of what it says in the box. Um, that the, the peat isn't so strong as, as it would seem to be by the repetition of the word. Um, but it it's there um but yeah the 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 grassy notes are there i like a good grassy floral scotch that's something that's that's attractive to me mm. i was getting some nuttiness mm. too maybe just like a hint of hazelnut yeah um sure. uh I, i'm not crazy about nutty sorts of things but it adds to the layers and it's cool <laughs> um but just just the fact of the the complexity and how many different kinds of flavors are in this, I I would be okay drinking this just about any day, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so four stars for me. Um, Ethan, what about the book? Buy, borrow, forget about it. For War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, this will shock anyone who has listened to any of these episodes, but I am gonna say buy. <laughs> um, I'm tempted to say buy twice. I'm tempted to say buy at least two different translations. I mean, almost anyone's like I do definitely recommend the um, modern and Mandelker translation. But I mean, I think you should buy it at least twice, read it at least twice in two different translations just to have even a sense of, of a complete experience. Um, I'm tempted to even recommend buying Mandelker and Maud and um your translation that I've Pavir and Volokonsky. Yeah. Um purely from the passages you've read, 
uh, into the record of of these four episodes. Um, just because they are, they're also beautiful in like a different way. Like I think the, I think the mm. modern Mandelker really render a beautiful English version, and I think that um, uh, uh, yours sort of renders a version that feels more Russian or more, at least more mm. sort of foreign, but like in a good way. In 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 you know. Again, you know, not ha- not knowing any Russian, I I can't speak with authority on how authentic it feels uh, or uh, how authentic it actually is, but it feels very authentically Russian. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, by like multiple times is my is my rating there. I like with any book that's a classic in in another language, like multiple copies, multiple translations. I will always recommend trying that out if it's worth your while and this is definitely one that's worth your while i am giving this a buy also buy this book buy this book um i i i'm very fond of the pavir volokonsky translation um having not read any other translation i will just claim that this one is the correct one <laughs> um and so <laughs> um it, it's really it's it's kind of a, a handsome book too i've got the the old hardcover that came out in 2007 there are paperback editions of it now yeah i have um, that i i see on um barnes noble shelves all the time um i have the paperback but it's yeah yeah and like so like the the one thing that i i would want to buy another one for is i would want a paperback i think because this in hardcover is just massive Mm. this is a bible that you're carrying around Mm -hmm. And to, like sit and and read it. It's not a leisure activity. <laughs> right. The size of a thing. Right. Um, it's not something that'll it's, fit it's in exercise. your back pocket when you're like on vacation, walking around or whatever. Right, right. Um, and not that a paperback is is necessarily small. I mean, either. But gotta tell um, you, I I'm looking at my paperback right over there. It won't also fit in your back pocket. <laughs> Hell, you just need different pants. Um, yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so I, I, I would be interested to read another translation of this, and probably I won't wait. A f- I won't wait fifteen years to read it again. <laughs> um, but I, I like there is something about this book, and it, it is something to keep coming back to. Mm. Um, just how how real, how human it is. Um. Like, we talked a lot about uh, some of Tolstoy's ideas in here, and we also talked about how real his characters are. But there's a a crossover in that Venn diagram that is... that I don't know that we explored fully. Um, Just the idea that that these characters, being so human, being so real, they are people that we can relate to, that we can have dialogue with uh, in in a way that, like, I I don't know. I think this book can be Mm life-changing. Um, for for people, so I uh, buy it or even life affirming, like yeah, I don't know that yeah. it has to. You, you know, whether something will change your life has a lot to do with where your life is, and that's not to say right. I disagree. Like I think this book could be life changing, but like even even just like yeah, life affirming or what? life uh, like like uh, shifting shifting. It, well, oh, it's one just a one turn. one degree turn. Yeah. 
<laughs> and sometimes that's all this this book can provide one degree of, of turn. sometimes that's all you need <laughs> that's or all that exactly yeah. yep. um so all right yeah i i was gonna say um, i yeah from this disc- like because this is the thing about war and peace when i'm reading it i'm so mad at the fact that i've read <laughs> 700 pages and i'm not even halfway through it um like i'm constantly i'll give my wife updates like hey wife guess what i'm 1100 pages in only like a fairly large normal novel to go um (laughs) and like i read this book you know whatever two two three months ago our discussion now has made me want to go reread it like there's right i probably Uh, won't do it makes me so mad i probably won't do it but there's like a non-zero chance that i read it a second time this year um (laughs) it's like it's like one of those books that like when you're reading it you're mad and then as soon as you're done you want to go back and read it again um Mm -hmm. yeah and you know like like we're i'm 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 tacking on to the end of your recommendation and I've already done mine and I'm, uh, but like I had to say it. What else is new? That's right. Well, Ethan, would you like to rate the pairing of scotch and book? Uh, pretty good match. Perfect match. Slight mismatch. Total mismatch. Um, I actually am going to say perfect match. Uh, just because this scotch had, did have so many different layers like it was a beautifully layered and and complex scotch um and obviously the book did too like listen if you haven't listened to the last four episodes like why are you here do how are how are are you here but also why are you here how how did you get here (laughs) perfect match on that on that score well i hate to say it ethan (laughs) but our ratings are a perfect lineup this time because i'm also going to say a perfect match it's it's a dangerous thing with a scotch though uh and a book that like if the scotch is too interesting and the book is too interesting like they're they're competing but in this case they really complement each other yeah i think think that Um, like a five star scotch as opposed to a four star one which is again still a very good rating but a five star one would have been like a worse match than this four star one yeah, yeah. I mean, depending on the five star scotch for sure, yeah. but yeah, I think you're right. Like a scotch that's way too interesting, I would not be able to concentrate on the book as much yeah. because I'd be too interested in the scotch. Yeah. Um, so that's but, a paradox we're gonna I, have no, to live with going forward. Yeah, I guess that's just just we'll just have to let that be. <laughs> um, all right, Ethan. Uh, for our next set of two books, um, your go- your book is going to be next, oh, and it? then my book will come after that. So yes. Okay. So what? <laughs> what book are we reading next, Ethan? So the next book, apparently, that we are going to read is called "Convenience Store Woman," a novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is by an author named Sayaka Murata. Um. Translated by Ginny Tapley Takamori. Uh, And I'm just going to read, I guess, the first sentence of sort of, I think, the cover jacket description or whatever. 
Um, mm-hmm. The English language debut of one of Japan's most talented contemporary writers. Convenience Store Woman is the heartwarming and surprising story of 36-year-old Tokyo resident Kiko Furukura. Um, mm-hmm. And the the description goes on. I've sent you the page, Michael. You can choose to read it yeah. or not, as as you will. Um, it is it is again coming towards you in the mail. Hopefully, we'll be there soon. Uh, sure. It is a book that I first encountered um, when I was in Tokyo earlier this year. Um, hmm. in a Japanese bookstore and like at some point I will have to wax poetic about Japanese bookstores because I felt I liked Japanese bookstores even when I was like like they were mostly or entirely in like titles in Japanese a language that I do not speak or read um <laughs> but I encountered this this book in possibly the only Japanese bookstore that I that we went to in Tokyo. We you know we weren't going to bookstores like that wasn't the the intention. But there was one we went to that had like a shelf like a like envision like one Barnes and Noble shelf unit. Uh, you know like four mm-hmm. individual shelves. Of English language books. And it was clearly meant for tourists. Mm. Just like meant for, you know, tourists to pick pick up something and that they could read. Because they had read through the one book they brought and needed another one. Um, and it had a really interesting grab bag of different stuff in English. Um, including, you know, some like thrillers and, and mysteries and stuff from just like English language writers that you'd expect. Um, there was a copy of I Am a Cat, uh, in English. Um, nice. That I was tempted to buy, but I was like, this is, like, the cover was cool, but I was like, this is the same translation that I, like, there's no reason to, oh, to sure. buy it. Um, yeah. Uh, anyway, and then there was, like, every Haruki Murakami title, um, oh, that exists, uh, translated into English. And then... Um, this book, Convenience Store Women, just happened to be on that shelf, and and Murata, uh, alphabetically, more or less, right next to Murakami. Um, I just looked at it. I looked at the back cover blurb, and here's the thing: I don't remember, like, what the back <laughs> cover blurb said. Uh, I just remember that it made me kind of want to buy it, but I had a bunch of books with me already. And I just, like, noted mm. the author and title and then, like, looked for it when I got back to the States in used bookstores and found it. Um, and I've just nice. been wanting to read it ever since and haven't read it myself. I have my own copy. Um, you will now have your copy. And, yeah, there we there we go. Perfect. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, as soon as it comes, I'll crack it open. Um, would you like to know what we are reading after that, Ethan? Of course. Now, I I think there's a, a slight chance that you might already have a copy of this book. Um, 
but this uh, this comes to us as a uh, a suggested crossover with another podcast. Yeah. Um, and uh, when it when it comes to that, we'll we'll see if uh, if that uh, that pans out the way we we would like it to. But the next book we are reading is Salem's Lot by Stephen oh. King. <laughs> Uh, do you have a copy of this? I don't. Um, I'm sure okay. I can easily find one for a couple bucks. I'm not worried about that. That's yeah, probably you can because I mean it's Stephen King. Yeah, it's 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 an older Stephen King, and so it's it's all over. For a second, I um, thought you were going to yes. say The Stand, and I was going to be like, oh, okay, uh, uh, interesting choice to introduce another like 1,200 page book, but no. <laughs> no <laughs> no not the stand that which is the only other stephen king i've ever oh, read really? actually um yeah and like i my my impression of the stand was like well okay this is interesting but i don't feel a burning need to read more stephen right. king um so i i like i i'm interested because I, uh, the, this book has been on my radar as probably the next Stephen King book I would want to read. Okay. I would be interested to read. Um, so I'm interested to to see where where this one goes. Do you know about Salem's Lot, Ethan? Do you um, know of it. I mean, you probably heard the title. But... I know the title. I know that like Salem is short for Jerusalem. I know connotations right. with the Salem witch trial, witch trials. Uh, is how I apparently <laughs> decided to say that. That's all I know. Yep. Okay. Very good. That's that's fine. <laughs> that's great. Um. So, good. Well, that's uh, those are our next two two books, gentle listener. So please read along, and uh, if you would like to share your thoughts with us on these books or any other books that we've discussed or really anything, uh, go to the contact section of tapsterradio.org and be sure to put Scotch Talk in the subject line. Or on Facebook, you can request to join the Tapster Radio Tap House, and we'll let you in. Uh, unless you're a scumbag like Anatoly. Um, we will also do your homework, uh, like we've said and like we promise. Uh, we'll do your English homework if you submit it to us at tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Fill out the form at the top of the page, and we'll do it on the podcast, and you can turn that into your teacher or professor, and we'll laugh as you get hauled off to plagiarism jail. Um, Ethan, any other uh, promotion that you would like to do? Nothing comes to mind. Just use... Use the uh, tapestry mm-hmm. email mailbox situation. I've apparently lost all my words. Definitely. If you want to contact yep. me. Who needs them? Perfect. Who needs words? Uh, so until next time, gentle listener, just remember it's our party and we'll cry if the scotch is too complex. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>